So we're going to talk to Anne-Marie Paulin-Campbell, who, in addition to being on the spirituality team at the Jesuit Institute, is also a psychologist and has her own private practice. And I wanted to talk to her a little bit today about some of the issues that arise as a result of sexual abuse and rape. So Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be with you. Thanks. So we all know that in the moment, the experience of rape or the experience of sexual abuse is traumatic. But I think one of the things that perhaps is less well known are some of the longer term consequences for people who experience that kind of violation. Um, I've certainly heard when talking in parish communities, people saying, oh, well, it's happened now, you need to just be over it and get on with your life. And I think that there's something that they, they can get that in the moment there was a crisis, but they don't seem to understand that this might have long-term consequences. Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of those might be? Absolutely. I think there are huge long-term consequences for people who have survived either sexual abuse or rape. And those consequences can affect every single aspect of that person's life and functioning as well as their relationships. It's not the kind of thing that is easily forgotten or the effects are easily uh, dealt with because it violates something right at the core of that person. It's extremely problematic in the sense that the kind of symptoms that one might be likely to experience as a result of that kind of violence or abuse are, are symptoms that, you know, can be things like depression that can go on for years, uh, anxiety levels that can be easily triggered. Someone, you know, who might just experience being in a similar situation in terms of just the area looking similar or seeing someone who reminds them of the person who attacked them can be triggered into a serious anxiety attack. The capacity to form relationships is often very affected mm-hmm. um, because there's a sense in which a deep trust has been broken, that it's no longer easy to enter into a trusting relationship because of what's happened to the person. Um, and so many people who are survivors of rape or of sexual abuse find it extremely difficult to form lasting and meaningful long-term relationships because of the struggle that they have. One of the things I, I know I've heard about is that sometimes even people who may manage to get married or to, to begin a relationship may find things like sexual intimacy overwhelming and that they may battle with that. And then their partners can feel very frustrated and, and not understand what's going on, especially if the abuse happened some years in the past. I think that's absolutely right, that's, that often people don't understand and, and that can have a, a seriously negative impact on someone's relationship. Entering into uh, a sexual relationship can be extremely difficult because that in itself reminds the person of the experience and brings that experience back. So people often have things like flashbacks where they're reminded in a very vivid way of what happened to them and so are unable to enter into that experience in a way that is free. So what would your advice be to someone who who feels that they may be suffering from this kind of reaction, who's living with the consequences of having been abused in this way, even if it was many years in the past? I think I would say that there is help out there, that although the healing journey may be a long one and you know, it's not an easy journey. It's really important to find some kind of help and support in being able to process what has happened. So I would say that they really need to find a support group, 
whether there's someone leading it who's well-trained, they need to find some counseling, some therapy, perhaps with a social worker or a psychologist. One of the big problems that we do have, however, is access to that kind of, of resource. In the private sector, there are a lot of very good and well-trained psychologists, but unfortunately many people can't afford the kind of rates that private psychologists or psychologists in, in private practice sometimes have to charge. And unfortunately, access to this kind of help in, in the community is not that easy. However, there are places that people can go to. And for example, you have the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, who would be a good place to, to go to in terms of dealing with some of the issues like depression or anxiety that can be a part of that experience. Can I just pause you there for a moment, just so that listeners have a sense uh, of what those two words mean. Just what might people be feeling if they were suffering from something like depression? How would you know that you were depressed? Or how might okay. someone around you know that you are depressed? So someone who is suffering from depression might have some or, or all of these kinds of symptoms. They might feel a real sense of sadness that lasts. It's not just a, a down day, but a sense of sadness that is very deep and that continues. Uh, there may be a loss of a sense of excitement or enthusiasm about things that they might previously have enjoyed. Often there is insomnia, battling to sleep at night or waking up in the middle of the night, issues with appetite, either eating too much or too little. So none of those symptoms on their own would say that a person is depressed. But if you had a number of those things and a sense that life just doesn't feel worth living, People who are very depressed often feel suicidal, that they don't want to continue living because life seems to hold no sense of um, hope or life or uh, enjoyment for them. Right. And anxiety? I mean, the word I know seems to say it, but just to tease out a little bit more, what might a problem with anxiety look like? Someone who is anxious finds it difficult to, to go out and do things in the world. Uh, they might want to withdraw into themselves. Uh, they might also battle with sleeping. There might be a sense of, of restlessness, of heart palpitations. Uh, some people suffer from what we call panic attacks. Um, and panic attack is a symptom that often is something that people experience when they've been through a rape or a sexual abuse incident. A panic attack can feel a bit like a heart attack. It's a sense of not being able to breathe easily, of feeling one's heart racing, of feeling overwhelmed by a sense of panic, of wanting to run away or get away somehow. And that can be quite a, a frightening experience in itself. And so although a panic attack can feel a lot like a heart attack, it's in fact an emotional thing that's happening inside, which is saying that the level of emotional arousal, the level of intensity of what's going on inside is so strong that the person cannot hold it very easily. It overwhelms them. Mm. One last question. If you were to think about people who may know that they have a spouse, a husband, a wife, um, or a child who's been abused, or that they may know that that person was perhaps abused as a child, the people nearest them, family members, spouses, what would you say as being the most helpful way of behaving with the person themselves, with the survivor? I think the first and most important thing, particularly when someone first discloses an experience of sexual abuse or sexual violence, is that that person is believed. Mm. Because so often 
people talk about what has happened to them and they run into someone that they're telling this very, very traumatic experience to doubting their experience. And that's one of the most problematic things that can happen because it's a re-traumatizing experience for that person. So I think the very first thing is to to ensure that the person knows that you that you believe them and that you care about them. And to be really patient, knowing that it's going to be a long process for them to come to a place of healing, that they're not just going to snap out of it or get over it or any of those kinds of things, that there is something incredibly deep in the psyche that is wounded um, and is going to take time to recover. And I think we also have to be aware of the spiritual implications of sexual abuse and, and rape and violence that very often that sense of trust that is fractured and broken in terms of one's relationship with people is also affected in terms of one's relationship with God. There can often be a sense of, why did God not prevent this from happening to me? How could God have allowed this to happen to me? And so I think there is a rebuilding of one's experience of God and faith that can take a long time to take place as well. One's experience of faith can also be a resource, though. It can be a place that one can go in order to have a sense of that security, that love, that, that gift of God that is always present. But for each person, it's different. No one person's journey will be the same as any other's. And there's no timetable for recovery. The process takes the time that it takes. And for some people, that's a lifetime, sadly, because Perhaps the violence they've experienced has been so profound. For other people, it can be a shorter journey of recovery, but it is a journey. And each person's personality, their support system, their whole um, environment is going to have an impact on how that journey unfolds. But there needs to be a safe place where the person can talk about what's happened to them. And they may need to talk about it many times. But they also shouldn't be forced to talk about it. I think that it's very important that the survivor takes the lead in terms of what's important for their own healing and recovery. That they know inside themselves what they need. Yes, and to trust that they know what they need. But I think also when you see that someone has become very shut down, maybe isn't engaging anymore, isn't connecting with friends anymore, a very gentle approach to try and encourage that person to receive some help in a way that respects them and that it's their decision that allows them to perhaps be encouraged to try to use some of the resources that might be available in the community. Uh, there are uh, things like Lifeline, for example, which does offer some, some counseling uh, free of charge for those who, who may not have the resources it's really looking in the community for where can we find a place for the person to receive some psychological help and support, because that's very, very important. Yeah. Thank you, Amory. That's extremely helpful. I think the sense I get as I listen to you is that there is a real need for patience when dealing with someone who is a survivor of abuse. Yes, that, I think that there is, that there is a that this takes its own time. Takes its own, and that the person themselves needs to be patient with themselves and the people who love them need to also be patient with them. Yes, and I think that recovery goes through different stages. And, you know, people 
who are struggling with certain aspects of it just after the experience may process those things but find that five or ten years later as they go into a different relationship or as they enter a different part of their lives, they may again be confronted with remnants of that experience which they need help with. Um, and I think that's a very common experience for people. It's kind of a lifetime of processing this trauma mm. for many. Thank you very much for sharing with us today and we hope to talk to you again. That was, Anne, uh, that was Francis talking to Anne-Marie about uh, the signs that a person who has uh, uh, suffered a rape might have. So we will be able to identify them on our loved ones. I think listening to this interview, we come to understand how uh, family structure and a support structure really plays it, its role in this um, in, in this uh, problems. So I will advise you at home to just uh, listen to these people, listen to the survivors, support them, and please don't judge them. Um, so moving um, on, we'll be listening to a song by Jack Vrells, and uh, the title of the song is "Only, Only If Only We Have Love. With our arms open wide, and the young and the old will stand at our side. If we only have love, love that's falling like rain, then the parched desert earth will grow green again. If we only have love. So, as we come towards the end of today's show, you get me pre-recorded and today as you know is the feast of the ascension and I thought it might be really helpful to use that form of prayer that we sometimes call imaginative contemplation to just engage with a passage of scripture and obviously the passage I want to engage with is the passage from the beginning of Acts where Jesus ascends to the Father. If you are at home and comfortable, you may like to shut your eyes. Obviously, if you're driving, please keep them open, but you can set your imagination free. And remember, this prayer is one that really should engage all the senses, sense of touch and taste and sight and hearing, but particularly feeling. What do I feel? Not just the sensory sense of feeling, but our emotions. What emotions are aroused in me? As we begin this, Jesus has been talking to his disciples. It's the last time he appears to them. And he's been talking to them, and he's been telling them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit upon them. And if you'd like to just imagine for a moment this group of people standing out on a hillside, engaging with the Lord, engaging with the one who died and is risen, which in and of itself must have been extraordinary, And then he says to them, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And then, after saying this, he was taken up to heaven as they watched him, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Just imagine for a moment what that must have felt like to be standing watching this man that they had come to know, to love, who they had watched and heard about, 
watched as he's died, heard about his death, and then for 40 days people had been seeing him. His closest friends had been having encounters with him. And now he leaves them, and this time they know he is leaving them in a more definite way. And they see him, scripture says, being taken up into heaven and hidden by a cloud from their sight. And just for a moment or two, to really be in touch with what might have been going on in their hearts. What did they feel? Perhaps a sense of awe, perhaps a sense of loss. Perhaps a sense of delight or peace, confusion. And imagine yourself, imagine if you had stood there that day. If you had heard Jesus promising to send you the Holy Spirit, challenging you to go and speak to the ends of the earth about what he is offering, and then you had watched him taken into heaven, what would you feel? Just imagine in your heart what conversation you and God might have about that. So we come to the end of today's show and I ask you to go out and to speak to the world, especially today on Ascension Thursday, and to speak to them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>